because designers and architects, we often think about these technologies as applying just to the design process. And it's true of like data, it's true of like computational design, it's true of a whole bunch of other things that we put so much love and emphasis into what we're doing in the design process. We often don't put the same amount of attention into the kind of overall process of running a business. And in many cases, the low-hanging fruit exists outside of the design process and those places. So in areas like marketing or in HR, like there's products that you can buy off the shelf, like CultureAmp and stuff like that, that have pretty sophisticated data analysis tools and pipelines. You don't really need to know that much about what's going on to use them and benefit from them. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, very, very excited to be joined by Dr. Daniel Davis. For those of you not familiar with Dr. Davis, you may have actually read his writing. Uh, He's written some of the most read articles on Architect Magazine, including one that surveyed the landscape of new companies focused on design automation, and another more recent one, examining recent protest letters uh, to Autodesk. Uh, His research has been published in Wired Magazine, Fasco, and Harvard Business Review. It's truly a delight to be able to share the screen uh, with Dr. Davis today. Uh, Thank you, Daniel, for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I I kind of want to start off by talking about your current role. I should have prefaced that, but basically it'd be helpful to kind of walk walk us through a little bit of your your career trajectory and maybe talk a little bit about your current work? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I guess the trajectory is that I studied architecture in New Zealand and went on to do a PhD in Australia, working on Sagrada Familia with Mark Barry there. And then after that, I moved to America and I worked for Case, which was a consultancy run by Dave Fanos, Dee Sanderson and Fed Negro. And kind of two years into being there, Case got acquired by WeWork and I joined WeWork and work with you and a whole bunch of other like really interesting people for about four years kind of rethinking the way that space is constructed and designed at WeWork. Wheels kind of fell off that a little bit and about a year ago I left and joined Hassel and Hassel's a architecture firm that's all around the world um, doing a lot of I was really attracted to them for the workplace projects they do, um, really advanced, sophisticated kind of projects. But they also do a lot of kind of urban design work and airports and all that kind of stuff. And so at Hassel, I've joined them as senior researcher and we're working to kind of better understand the performance of projects and think through how to kind of get more performance out of the things that we're designing. That's great. And how, how big is the, the research team right now? The team's pretty small, so it's about two people on the research team, and then we have a strategy team that's probably about a dozen people, and we work with external partners for the rest of the research. Oh, that's cool. And so the way that your org is structured, is it that you're working much more closely with the strategy team, or do you work on the on per-project basis? So the strategy team tends to work on individual projects, and the research team tends to look more broadly across collections of projects or kind of themes or topics that may be of interest to the practice. One of the things that I'm I'm very much interested in in chatting with you is, but before uh, we turn the cameras on, we're talking a little bit about the culture of data. And for context, you know, a lot of our 
you know, at Monograph, we serve a lot of businesses that are mostly, you know, between a sole practitioner all the way to a 75 person firm. And within that, right, there's actually, you could look at it as like the business, those businesses look very different at even just very minor step change. So a five person firm looks very different from a six person firm just because even just adding one person changes the dynamic. And that, that we, we've been just been noticing that that kind of breaks down as you scale up. So even within that, there's like five different types of, of size firms. And I'm very curious about how, you know, a lot of your work has been focused on large, working with larger companies that might already be looking at data from a very specific lens, like maybe namely project-based. I'm curious, what are your thoughts about how firms at all scales can maybe start to think about data, both from like actually how it could help the business to also how do you instill like maybe even a uh, culture of data? Yeah, I think you're right in that like there's a difference in scale there between say how small firms approach it and how large firms approach it. So for large firms, there's almost no question that you're going to be going up against other companies that have invested a lot in that kind of technology and that are really sophisticated in their approach and that you're going to have to toe the line with them and meet them where they are. For smaller companies, I think it's a more kind of blurry picture. You know, like if you're a sole practitioner or you're a firm that has five people and you win a lot of your work through kind of personal relationships and doing good work in your community, like, maybe some of this stuff doesn't actually matter that much to you that um, there's other ways to kind of improve your firm. And I think there is a danger with a lot of this that um, people kind of see the shiny, exciting new piece of technology over invest in it and don't get the value out of it because realistically there were just like other more interesting and more impactful things that they could do. That said, though, I think there's um, quite a few examples of small firms in the industry that have been really successful in their approach to data. So I think of firms like The Living in New York, who probably best known for winning the MoMA PS1 competition. They later got acquired by Autodesk, but still kind of do their own kind of independent work. And they've done a number of projects that are really like leading edge and how they mm. approach data. Um, so they did a project, Princeton University, they made kind of like a house for a robot and they use machine learning and computer vision to understand the grain and wood and then kind of sandblasted the wood based on the material but i think like those are two kind of like extremes right like they're like going all the way in and everyone working there is like an absolute killer and that kind of stuff and i think for firms that are maybe in between it's a more kind of tricky tricky thing to work out but I think those firms that are in that kind of in-between state, I think there are kind of ways or kind of entry points in that they don't necessarily need to be like complex machine learning techniques. It could be how they approach marketing. Maybe they use more analytics in that process, or it could be how they manage the firm or how they manage HR that has more kind of data applied to it. And yeah, we can go into that, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You bring up the living. It's like for them, they it is their practice. Like you cannot divorce the two. They just don't work without thinking about how data informs their project. I mean, it is it's probably safe to say that almost everything they do starts with 
a point in space, right? Like, a, and you build up from that, right? They're, all they're doing is managing data to construct really interesting spaces versus maybe a more, uh, a firm that's really much more interested in, you know, developing residential projects, right? Where their client base is just, how their personal interest maps over to their work is just very, very different. And I think it's an interesting contrast, but, and I definitely agree with you that even as a smaller firm, or a firm that doesn't look at data the way that like the living does can still even use a spreadsheet, right? Or at a very basic level to track marketing or whether that's like, how many people did we reach out to this week? How many, com- how many meetings were we able to book for the next m- meeting? It's like, it's very, it seems very reductive, but even that is, that level of visibility can help improve a business moving forward. And I think we, we talked a little bit also about this idea, like, Potentially, there's maybe three different legs to the stool of data within a firm. I'm sure there might be more, but I'd be curious about your reaction to this idea that like there's like pipeline data, like how are we managing the work that comes in? Because, you know, if you unpack a business, it's ultimately an equation. And so it's like inputs and outputs, how many come in, how many projects are able to be worked on, how many of them close, right? So all that pipeline would data would capture that. Then it would go into like project level data, which is more to say it could be either performance based on like, how are we performing as a team? Or it could even be like some of the work that, that um, a lot of firms are doing, which is like looking at how data could impact design. And then potentially even like talent, like how do you actually design careers for your team members? And like, how does data inform their career growth is another kind of like I'm curious, like how, what have you seen across your career and what are some of the maybe pitfalls that people should look out for when they think about that framework? I think that's a really useful way of thinking about it. Cause I think as designers and architects, we often think about these technologies as applying just to the design process. And it's true of like data, it's true of like computation design, it's true of a whole bunch of other things that we put so much love and emphasis into what we're doing in the design process. We often don't put the same amount of attention into the kind of overall process of running a business. And in many cases, the low hanging fruit exists outside of the design process and those places. So in areas like marketing or in HR, like there's products that you can buy off the shelf, like culture amp and stuff like that, that have pretty sophisticated data analysis tools and pipelines, you don't really need to know that much about what's going on to use them and benefit from them. And in many cases, I think those are probably easier ways into this than um, necessarily going onto a project and doing a whole bunch of kind of analysis and GIS work and whatever to analyze it. Yeah. At the kind of scale that you operate in, what are the biggest challenges you face when it comes to actually just even either collecting data or what are the actual questions that people should even be asking themselves on before they start even thinking about data? I think one of the questions that I always ask is like, realistically, what's going to change if you invest in this collection of data and you do that project. And this happens time and time again. Um, when you're a researcher, someone will ask you to go and do research on whatever it is. And they're not really there asking you to do the research. They just want you to come up with the right answer that supports their view and validates what they were going to do anyway. 
in that case, it's like, why are you even like bothering doing this research or gathering this data or doing the analysis? Because the outcome was kind of preordained and you're just like post-rationalizing it basically. So I think one of the questions that I ask is like, if you were to do this research, if you were to gather this data, realistically, what would you do as a firm with that, that you wouldn't be doing already? And like, how would things change for the better or for the worse because of that? And then I think once you have that kind of in place, some of the major challenges, I think the technical side of it actually isn't that hard. Like all these tools have been kind of established. There's been people that have kind of worked through all the kind of difficult parts of doing the technical stuff. I think the main challenge is really cultural that even if you have buy-in and support to do something, it's for many architects, a really unfamiliar kind of process and something that they're not necessarily comfortable with. And there's a lot of kind of educating and championing and kind of encouraging to get that culture developed where people feel more comfortable engaging with it and being a part of it. What have you seen that has helped basically with that educational internal educational process? Is it, you know, identifying the people that like instinctually, I just think it might be involved in identifying people that are more uh, naturally inclined to care about that. And so you kind of build like rapport with those type of champions within the company that can help maybe either lead initiatives or help other people also to see the light in some way. Um, What have you seen has been very helpful? Yeah, I think that's a really successful tactic that within an organization, you can kind of place people on a spectrum. And there's some people that are just going to be so anti what you're doing that it's not even like worth really kind of working with them. And there's some people that are going to be real champions of what you're doing and you should be kind of identifying those groups of people and cultivating that relationship with them. And then I think beyond that, I think for a lot of people, it's hard to understand some of these things in the abstract. Like a lot of these initiatives that I've seen sort of fall over or fail have been when people have gone in kind of guns blazing, hire a team of like 10 people to go and do this radical transformation. And they kind of don't get anywhere because they've invested so much capital in doing this one thing and it doesn't quite find the traction or the audience that it needs. And a lot more of the kind of successful efforts that I've seen in that have been more kind of guerrilla and grassroots where teams will do like one or two things that are like small scale and interesting and gets the attention of a couple of people and builds kind of interest and then kind of snowballs from that. And I think in my experience, that's a much more successful technique than trying to just boil the ocean with some of this stuff. Yeah. To use your, uh, your water metaphor, ocean metaphor. I think of it as like trying to steer a large ship on a dime and the amount of effort that it takes to do that. It has to almost come from the very, very top of an organization in some ways to kind of really like go all in on that, right? It's like, yeah, in the tech world, it would be similar to like, even though Facebook's not so popular today, but it would be like equivalent to Mark Zuckerberg telling the entire company, like, we're going to drop everything on desktop and just focus on mobile. And all the engineers will now have to learn how to like build for mobile apps. And like that was company, that's like a company wide shift that takes a lot of courage to do in, in some way, but also a, a lot of belief to do that. And yeah, like yeah. See, at the, yeah, sorry, at, at the scale that you're, it's either you kind of do that or you have to do it in this way where it's like gorilla. I feel like even with like support from the top, 
there's always going to be people in the middle that you also need to kind of mm. win over and convince because they're facing their own kind of pressures day to day, right? That different than kind of the priorities that you're dealing with. And even if they're getting pressure from the top to kind of fall in line with something, often they won't because they're not getting judged on it or it's not kind of what they're prioritizing. So I think you need both of those things um, at once to really be successful in implementing some of these strategies. What would you say is like the, if someone wanted to, to bring on a team, like let's say it's a company that doesn't have any researchers on board and they are of this scale enough where it makes sense to do so, what would you say is the kind of maybe low-hanging fruit initiative that they could think about tackling or the kind of maybe low-hanging questions instead of just like, a, you know, like, it's not like, hey, do this project, but more like what could be a way in which they can actually start to introduce that into their culture? I think a little bit about like what data is already there at the company because gathering new data and creating new data is always problematic and kind of time consuming and it's always going to kind of slow down a project. So I'd at first like kind of do a stock take of like what exists currently at the company, what's available to be kind of analyzed and understood. And based on that kind of finding some of those kind of low hanging fruit and my intuition is that most of that data probably won't reside in projects, but will be kind of adjacent to projects, whether it's like costing or whether it's HR and resourcing. And I feel like those are also kind of fields where there are these kind of existing tools that people are probably more likely to, that are easier kind of implement and take up. Have you seen it where at WeWork, because you and I overlap there, it was very interesting to see how transparent the company was to some degree about its data. I mean, I think many people had access to Tableau or Looker, right, to be able to parse whether it was like sales data or uh, construction costs. And that visibility, it feels like that actually can empower. I mean, I, I felt that. I felt that kind of empowerment of being able to use that data to inform whatever initiative I was working on without having to go and ask somebody to like do that for me or like pull a report from me or, or whatnot. So I'm curious if you, what are the maybe pitfalls of doing that within an architecture or as, as an architecture practice, a place where that kind of can also happen, right? Like a more traditional office and what are the potential pitfalls of doing so or, or not? It's probably worth just emphasizing just like how well set up WeWork's kind of data infrastructure and pipeline was like a lot of that was Sped Negro and Dave Fano who kind of came in with that vision of how to use data in the design process. But there's also just like incredible kind of data teams and BIM teams that we work that work through a lot of the kind of tactics of that. And the end result was that like every BIM model was inside a huge database that anyone at the company could access and you could query that database and ask it like what's the largest meeting room we've ever built and i mean it'll come back in like one second right and most architecture firms if you went to them and asked them like what's the largest meeting room we've ever built like they just have no capacity to even kind of answer that question yeah. which in some ways is insane because they spend so long entering data into revit and revit is this huge database but that data is kind of thrown out at the end of the project once you produce the construction drawings. I think there's potential for companies to kind of adopt that process of kind of warehousing data like WeWork had 
But I also think there was a kind of a culture at WeWork where there's a lot of people really fluent in using data. There were courses that employees could go to to mm-hmm. kind of spend a week learning how to be better at um, analyzing data and asking questions of data. And I think that all kind of contributed to the success of those initiatives at WeWork. And I think doing one without the other potentially isn't going to be quite as successful. Yeah, the role of operation of like sales ops, rev ops is one that was very critical to enable, at least on the sales side, the growth team visibility into pipeline or visibility into, you know, how like forecasting and revenue projections that didn't really, I think without those teams, you don't really have the institutional knowledge to be able to do that effectively. Like you need a team that's just focused on how do we connect the data across the company operationally to make it efficient and effective, which actually might look very different from a traditional BIM team uh, in general, right? It's just like you need, there needs to be the introduction of a new layer of just focusing completely on practice operations throughout the business. Yeah, I remember some of the conversations that we work, which is like some of the most heated conversations, like how do you measure like a square foot and like a room, right? And like trying to define that, which was a really key metric for a lot of projects. There's a kind of rigor to that has to kind of exist for that stuff to work. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the definitions on like what a room, what a room meant, which we won't dive into today. But yeah, (laughs) it was interesting how like, it was almost at a philosophical level of what it, what is a room? How do you define a room? That was, I remember some of those conversations were pretty funny, but I think, I think this notion of introducing a data-driven culture, at least one that's looking at, I guess my own perspective is that I don't think that the data is everything, right? I think you brought up a very good point earlier. Like somebody will ask you a question, prompting you with the right response, like what they want the data to say, because it is, you know, you can craft data to tell the story that you need to, but at least having that, that additional sensibility to, to data helps the organization run more effectively on things. It gives more alignment. Like there's less, less ambiguity when it comes to discussions about certain things. Obviously rooms is one that, that might be more, more controversial, but if there were to be this kind of new way of looking at a firm or organizing a firm, do you know of other examples of other firms that are kind of approaching this problem in a different way, similar to Hassel, looking at research this way? Yeah, I think maybe like another way of kind of framing that or thinking about that is just like how clients, like what's the kind of environment that they're operating within and how are they thinking about this? Because a lot of projects are led by the client, right? And mm-hmm. we're getting into a world where historically clients didn't, necessarily know a lot about how their buildings were performing and we're getting to a place where they're getting a lot of data back from their projects whether it's from kind of sensors embedded within building elements or kind of objects placed within the space whether it's through kind of surveying and cameras and stuff like that like clients are getting really sophisticated themselves and how they're thinking about the performance of the real estate that they're creating And I think that that in itself is going to create an environment where it's going to be an expectation for architects to be able to kind of talk about their projects, not just in terms of the kind of creative and um, imaginative aspects of the project, which I think still clients are going to want because if clients know what they want, 
they don't need an architect to come in and challenge them and to yeah. kind of shake things up. But they're also going to want to see architects be able to kind of justify design decisions through data and through evidence. And I think that kind of atmosphere where the client has that kind of understanding and that sophistication is going to push more kind of on the architecture firm itself to be good at doing that. And it'll be a core competency, I think, for for a number of kind of architecture firms. Yeah, and it's actually like, thinking a little bit about it, it's like this idea of the relationship between data and space is not a very, not necessarily a new idea either. I think quantifying spaces is part of the history of architecture in many ways, at least from like the post-war, right? Like thinking about whether it's like proxemics where you're trying to develop a way in which to look at the distances between people and like some of it's sort of like fluffy pseudoscience, but there is a history of trying to understand how spaces function such to justify design decisions. And what's interesting is that it kind of has evolved to a certain point, but like you mentioned, the clients are just getting much more savvy about how it actually impacts what they're most concerned about, which is the maintenance of the thing after it gets built, right? What happens after all that? after the design work happens, the handoff happens, they're the ones that are left with having to unpack and understand the actual performance of the thing itself. So as architects transition and start to develop more intelligence around how to encroach in that, I guess the hope is that, you know, they can become better risk managers in some regards with their clients. And probably like um, the part of the story that we're not telling at the moment as well is that like there's groups outside of the traditional kind of architecture practice that are entering into that territory and that think about that. So a really kind of prominent example would be Sidewalk Labs, which is a subsidiary of Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. And they were doing the kind of waterfront project in Toronto, which recently kind of didn't go ahead. But you can see in the way that kind of Google's thinking about that or Sidewalk Labs was thinking about that, a lot of real sophistication and how they were going to gather data out of that project and feed that data back both into their design process and also into the way that kind of people live within those projects. And there's obviously a lot of kind of political tension there about whether that kind of gone too far, some of their ambitions around that project. But I think that's also kind of some of the backdrop here is that like if firms aren't going to be the ones that do it, then companies like Google are coming into this space and are going to be the ones that, really get there yeah i remember shortly after i grew around the same time that like my last year in grad school just hearing things like oh mckinsey's designing is like moving to designing urban plans for towns in africa and whatnot and just the the ways in which other other adjacent industries right that just start to see the opportunity in this industry of like the things that either architecture firms are not necessarily tackling or that they might be more risk averse to tackle these other entrants are just coming in saying well actually like that can be part of our wheelhouse and that can be part of our core competency because you know we already have the relationship with the buyer the you know the executive team at a company why couldn't we go and pitch urban design or why can't we go pitch something else which is also you know i i think this is going back to the culture because I think that, that part is so important. It's like it's either the culture of firms starts to change in such that they look at data very intently 
or which could happen, right? I mean, as younger generations of people start to go into the, that grew up with data, meaning like Instagram, if you have an account as a, let's say you were an influencer in, in undergrad selling design objects through your Instagram account while being an architecture student, you probably got to see a lot of dashboards along the way and like started to look at your world through the lens of analytics and cause and effect and doing experiments. And so that will naturally mean that once that generation comes up and graduates, they are much more data savvy, right? And they're going to either ask of that from the companies that they want to work with or just start fresh and rethink like entire new business models just based on on the kind of culture that they've grown up with. The big challenge is today, how do you do that today? How, how can you impact that change today? Yeah, no, I think it's definitely going to be a challenge for firms. Um, and certainly I think like, Large firms kind of have an advantage here where there's kind of a scale to them that a lot of this makes sense, where you can kind of put resources aside to look at some of these things where you have a lot of the data on hand to do this. And I think you're already seeing a number of the kind of large firms actually do some pretty cool and interesting things in this space. And yeah, I think the kind of question for smaller or medium-sized firms is whether you go along with that or whether you kind of see against that and kind of position yourself as something outside of that as a point of differentiation. That's a good point about like how you could position yourself almost, but are you saying like position yourself as an anti-data firm or do you mean like, yeah, maybe kind of, how would you, to play along with that, how would you position against that, Green? Yeah, I'm not like, I think uh, pretty much any other industry has gone through this process already. So you can kind of look at what's happened there. So if you look at something like advertising, like, Google is the dominant company in advertising because they're incredibly sophisticated in how they predict what people are going to click on web pages. But there's a whole bunch of like small creative firms that are like, we don't give a fuck about any of that data. We're going to make an advert for you or make a brand for you that is authentically who you are and not driven by some kind of data. And the same is true in the fashion world, right? Like there's, um, the dominant companies in fashion are like fast fashion companies that use a lot of data and forecasting to mm. understand what's coming. But then there's a whole kind of industry of people that are like who I am and this kind of authentic thing that I'm producing is the thing that's valuable and kind of going against that grain of that mm. analysis. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. That I mean, that's a really those are really good examples. In in the world of architecture, it would be just firms that resonate with a lifestyle, and so it's like it's it's almost harder to come across that in like commercial, like it, it type, you know by typology, right? It's not like you can hire uh, the um, I don't know the Virgil Abloh of architecture to work on a hospital necessarily, just because there's a sort of misalignment in in terms of what the, you know, it's a larger organization, much more stakeholders. And so it's harder to sell this idea of like someone that's really about a lifestyle into, you know, designing a hospital. Though I, I really would love to see uh, that, that happen. Uh, probably really bad for patient outcomes, but I'm sure it would be pretty wild to reside there. But um, I think it does make sense within the realm of residential, right? Like you, if you build a strong enough brand, Really, that means that you have to think about marketing very distinctly. And I think that, that's a whole other can of worms about how architects market themselves and how can they put themselves in front of people. 
that is still not to say that they can't use data to inform that. It just means that, yeah, it's like one avenue in which they can approach it. Where it's like, it's not about the projects. We don't really care about data-driven projects, but we will look more at like, how are we reaching the audience we want to reach with the kind of lifestyle that we're trying to sort of create environments for. But I think it would be really interesting to talk a little bit about the data pipeline. You mentioned a little bit about how it might be much more accessible for larger firms, like looking at like historical data. What have you seen as kind of like the quick wins that someone could implement today to help understand like, like what should every firm be looking at if they have the resources to do so? I feel like the holy grail for every firm is post-occupancy data. And I mean, we just as an industry aren't great at doing that. For the most part, we construct projects, see them opened. We may talk to the clients kind of one-off about how things are going down the track, but we don't get a lot of good feedback about whether or not the things that we design perform the way that we say or think they are. So I think that's where I think a lot of the opportunity lies for these projects and these companies. But I also think it's a really hard nut to crack because there's a whole bunch of kind of different reasons why that doesn't happen currently. And each one of those is really difficult and challenging to overcome. Yeah. Like one that comes to mind is contracts. How A lot of times what you're trying to do is get someone to agree to have data collected to understand the potential value of what the design is offering. But even with that, I do wonder what, what kind of data is available out there publicly available that can help inform at least something. As an example, I remember as a side project for myself, I was like looking at look, uh, developing a, using if this, then that to geolocate a range around a project so that if any picture was taken in Instagram, geolocated at a certain building, I would populate a spreadsheet with that information. It was very simple. And the, the one, the building I chose was Via 57 by Big, just to see like what kind, like what are people even taking pictures of? And it's a very domestic stuff, just like friends, family, whatnot. But sometimes it was the view outside. Sometimes it's about like, oh, I love this place. I love like, look, check out my new apartment or, or whatnot. Or like, there's this kind of capturing of like the daily life that's very fascinating that can be helpful for a firm to understand, well, what is the day in the life of a project that we've actually done? What does that look like? Do people even take pictures of the building itself? Like, so I'm sure similar to that, there's probably ways in which a firm could start to understand the impact, the design impact of what they've put out into the world. Yeah. Now I think there's um, some examples of kind of publicly available data like that. And often, not necessarily in the States, but definitely in Europe, like governments put together really good data sets that are really well organized and structured related to kind of the built environment and cities. And some of that kind of gives a hint at how people are using space. But I also think that a lot of what we want to know about projects just isn't in there. And firms are going to need to create and generate a lot of that data if they want to get to this place where they're really understanding the performance of what they're designing. Have you come across any examples of where there have been successful implementations of a post-occupancy Aside from like, you know, WeWork is a great example, but because it's such a vertic- vertical business, soup to nuts, 
there's it can't it can't really kind of fall in line with this example. Like they are the they are the client. But are there any other examples that you might have seen where there was a successful implementation of a of post occupancy in a project and what that might what outcomes that led to? Yeah, I'd say like pretty much any vertically integrated company, like whether it's Disney or Starbucks, they have in-house really sophisticated ways of kind of understanding and thinking about this. And often they're kind of the market leaders in doing a lot of this work, but they never talk about it because it's kind of a competitive advantage to keep that wrapped up. And I think, I mean, to be honest with you, there's not many examples that I can think of in the architecture industry that I look to as kind of North Stars. And I think some of the more interesting and better examples of what's happening in this space exist kind of in the tech world where it's pretty common to do usability studies, run analytics, A-B test things. And I think a lot of the techniques that they're using in that kind of realm are applicable to what architects are thinking about as well. Have you thought about or like has... Have you come across conversations about even just how if a firm were to shift us or create a new line of revenue for the business, let's say, like let's hypothesize that a firm really wanted to understand post-occupancy, they could in theory create a line of revenue that was about almost like a subscription service for a company where they basically are providing the core infrastructure, the software infrastructure to be able to understand a project but then give value back. So whether that's to the workplace experience teams that are probably part of a larger commercial project, you know, commercial client, or, and it's likely that that's where it would resonate the most, but have you even seen any instance of that where people experimenting there? Yeah, there's some examples of firms trying that kind of model. And I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting model because the way that architects traditionally operate is like the client comes to you with a problem when they decide that something's gone wrong enough to justify hiring an architect to kind of deal with this. And often the client isn't the best one to judge that because they're not an expert in that kind of situation. And that someone who has that kind of expertise is maybe better off to say when that kind of point of time has come. I think some of the challenges that other firms have faced when they've kind of gone into that model of like, consulting after a project is that firms aren't really set up for the way that they think about like revenue inside a business is often related to projects. And so often that kind of service ends up becoming kind of business development for them. And it's not necessarily a um, successful initiative that is this kind of ongoing service that they're offering. And I think some of the more kind of interesting companies in that space aren't necessarily architecture firms. They're like comfies, like an app that people are using to, with an app you can vote on the temperature in an office and it will kind of adjust the temperature and to satisfy as many people as possible. I mean, it's a form of post-occupancy evaluation, right? Because it's constantly polling people about whether or not they're comfortable. But they're not there trying to sell you on architectural services after it. So their kind of business model is more aligned to doing that just because of the way that they're set up. But it's not to say that I think, I mean, some firms are going to get to a place where they do that really well, but there aren't many examples that I'm aware of of firms that have been really successful at that yet. Yeah, it would seem like maybe one route would be the institutional knowledge required to even run a business like that which is also very different. Like it goes back to the idea of steering the ship. 
where it's just such a directional change that you would have to really be all in and have to hire somebody that has experience running that type of business in order to sort of be the general manager of it. Um, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, it's just like it, even the accounting structures inside of a firm wouldn't, might not even know, might not be well suited to understand how to run that, that side. I think this is probably where there's going to just be continuous. I mean, there should be continuous innovation within the industry. It's like figuring out what kind of new either, either firms are anticipating sort of new lines of revenue that could emerge from their services or potentially investing in other companies that are doing this so that at least like there's collective upside. So if like there was a company that was doing something transformative, you can get into the industry itself could be supportive of that, uh, of that, that kind of change. I think it's like an interesting point, right? Cause I think a lot of firms feel like their secret source is like, I don't know, like some script that they've created or the thing that like differentiates them or makes them successful isn't the thing that they think it is. And they waste a lot of time competing against one another and building stuff in-house that perhaps would be better shared through the industry and their time kind of focusing on the thing that actually matters the most and kind of differentiates them the most from other firms. Yeah, that also brings to mind how often it is that one thing that I, if almost like as a sort of advice in some ways about, about like building software in relation to, or just building these tools and whatnot is like, ultimately the thing that's least thought about often is the maintenance of the thing that's been built. And it might resonate with the industry in the sense that like architects in general deliver a thing. And then kind of the maintenance of it is more risk that they rather not think about. But when it comes to actually building tools inside of a firm, like it does require, you know, things get outdated new frameworks come in, uh, Rhino gets updated and that breaks Grasshopper or whatever, right? Like whatever tools you're using, there's all these kind of, the, the issue of maintenance is incredibly important for anything that's built. It, it does require an investment, a perpetual investment in the thing that's built, especially if you're, if you're being serious about it. Now, Chris, for you guys, like how much of your time do you think you spend on like creating new things versus um, supporting and maintaining? Yeah. Like, the thing that you've already created? For us, it's a constant series of trade-offs. We have to, it is just constant prioritization. What thing should we build today that is going to serve the most amount of value to the most number of users, both the ones that are here today and the ones that will be here in the future. And you constantly have to recognize that you're, you might not make everyone happy on any given week. You know, there's always going to be someone that, really sees the, you know, they might be missing a feature or there's, you know, something that they're coming across. And like, we have to constantly build frameworks for ourselves to say, well, how much of a priority is this thing in relation to other things that we could invest our time into? And I think that it is a very healthy model because I think, you know, it constantly forces us to keep top of mind of like, what is the thing? Like, are we building the right thing that will add more value? Which, which could be helpful inside of a firm too, that, that kind of thinking of like, is this the thing, out of all the things that we could be doing, is this the thing that's going to be maybe the least amount of effort to build with the highest value and constantly iterating on that process and checking our framework to make it better and more inclusive of like, you know, all the various kinds of uh, feedback that we get, right? Mm-hmm. It's its own thing. It's like you constantly have to be thinking about, about it. 
Yeah, maybe to kind of bring it full circle, like, I think it also relates to, like, Autodesk itself, right? Like, all the kind of agitation around Revit and where that's going at the moment. Like, I mean, Autodesk are in a tough position. I can't imagine what it's like being a product manager inside that company. We have this product that's super successful. Thousands of people are using it in production. The code base is old, and you're trying to make these decisions about, like, people asking you to basically scrap everything and build something completely new. Yeah. And at the same time, there's like a little feature that you need to kind of add in and you're also trying to support everything else. Like, I mean, it must be really hard to kind of navigate that, that kind of complexity there. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with people at Autodesk, but I imagine that if the business is, is one that, that has been built over time through acquisitions, through just buying other products, not necessarily creating its own products internally, that that is part of the internal struggle. It's like they know that they can invest. They're actually very good at allocating capital to generate value, right? To so buy a bit, and that that that's proven out to be the case. But it then presents opportunities for other companies to come in that are very customer focused, customer centric, to come in and provide new solutions that the industry has been asking for for a very long time. And I'm sure they're aware of those things. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of very smart people there that are aware of that. But is sort of the lane that you want to drive in. And that's kind of the lane they've chosen. So I, I do have a couple, a couple, I do want to open it up for questions for anyone out there that wants to ask a question. I think actually I can kind of jump in and ask you some questions that I have, part of a little lightning round. So what are your favorite tools to use right now? Uh, I've actually been really, we spoke about this a little bit before the, the meeting. Um, we're using Teams internally at Hassle and I never thought I'd be saying this about a Microsoft product, but they absolutely fucking nailed it on that one. Like it is so well thought out the way that they kind of combine chat and um, calendar and video calling and wikis. It's, it's a really nice product. And then in my own work, I've been using a lot of pandas and Python for the kind of data analysis that we're doing. Yeah. All the kind of tooling around that's, really well well established and really nice to use. Yeah, we talked a little bit about the data side. Uh, for those in attendance that haven't tried out Data Studio by Google, I highly recommend that. We use it at Monograph. It's like a really powerful, free business intelligence tool. Basically, you can create your own charts and graphs through like data that you pipe in. And it could be just a simple spreadsheet, but it's a great way to make dashboards if you are conscientious about spending too much money on something like Looker or Tableau or even Power BI. Oh, we have a question. Can you foresee large architecture firms seeking to commercialize their data and processes as digital products? What impact could this have on the industry and its business? Yeah, I think um, there are examples of practices that, let's say like some of the analytical tools that they're kind of turning into not just services, but products that they're selling to other companies. And one of the examples that we kind of talked about is Proving Ground. Like they're doing some really cool stuff around their analysis and how they integrate BIM analysis into Power BI dashboards and stuff like that. And yeah, so I think there are kind of companies that are working to commercialize that. I think like whether firms will ever get to a point where they can sell data or whether like the data itself is more valuable than the services they offer, I don't really see that happening just because the data is only really valuable in like a big kind of aggregated 
scale and most firms just don't have that much data and the data that they do have is so kind of idiosyncratic and unique to that particular firm and the way that they practice and the way that they design that it's not necessarily useful to other firms or other people to have it. Yeah. There's also the challenge of basically once that product has been delivered, it's somewhat out of date, which is another kind of challenge that, that we work also had like from its pipeline from the data pipeline perspective. We had a great, great question here. What's your level of confidence that large firms trying to innovate invest internally will ever catch up to the high pars, giraffes, test fits, et cetera? Uh, so I don't think they need to necessarily catch up to those firms. Like they're doing their own thing. And I think it's going to be more about kind of collaborating with those organizations. And I think with all of these kind of things, it's like, you can have these really sophisticated algorithms, say in the case of Tesfit or Hyper, like doing parts of the design process, but you're also going to need the kind of creative and strategic intelligence of a, a designer that understands the context within those, in which those are operating. And by bringing those two things together and kind of successfully operating them, I think there's a lot of kind of opportunity there. That said, I do think there's probably going to be sectors of work that just aren't going to be viable for architects to compete with them. So if you were doing a lot of ADUs at the moment, probably getting out of that market because there's just so many people trying to prioritize that space and that are doing like really interesting things there that I think it would be kind of hard maybe to go toe to toe with a company like that. Yeah. It's definitely interesting as how the space is evolving by sector where a lot of this, the focus of new companies it's either you have the horizontal platform of like Hypar that can in some ways meet any use case or it's more infrastructural versus like a test fit, which right now is very hyper-specific to a, very, to a type, couple of typologies. And, you know, from a strategic perspective, it's not as likely that a test fit might meet the needs of a large institution that has different objectives from what it's looking to do, whether that's cultural like even, I don't know, like universities or hospitals, they just might be looking for a different set of requirements that, that are also ever evolving that or like test fits, something like test fits very, um, it's great for a very specific use case, assuming that that use case doesn't evolve quickly or that there's not a lot of updates that happen to that use case. What would be a collaborative open source project that you would like to see in the AEC industry? Oh my God, so many. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think... Kind of as we spoke about earlier, like there's all these firms like competing against one another on things that don't matter that much. So maybe going back to the earlier question about like how you compete against Hyper, like I don't think you do. Like are trying to open source and democratize a lot of that kind of institutional knowledge that's wrapped up in scripts that individual companies kind of hold on to. Um, and make them available. For me personally, the thing that I would just love to see in the industry would be like some form of like data sharing agreement where organizations or companies got together and agreed to somehow like anonymize and share project data and project performance data. Because I think for any one company or any one firm, the number of projects they have is inherently limited. But if you can open that pool up to say 10 firms sharing the data between one another, I think the kind of insight and performance that they'll be able to get is going to be a lot greater, but I also recognize that's kind of pretty fantasyful because yeah, firms just 
not going to get there. I don't think I'm, I'm doing something like that. Very good points. For for me, it would probably be, although it happens to some degree, I don't think you see it as, as you do necessarily in the tech industry when it comes to things like business development and marketing, the kind of continuous sharing of tactics, strategies, and techniques that people are doing there that are openly talking about how they won certain projects, even if they're competitive with each other, is very fascinating because what it ends up doing is just creating an ecosystem that is constantly looking for better tools and better techniques and better strategies, right, to grow businesses. And I, I, I think that personally is something that the building environment industry should be really be looking at in general. It's like some of the project information stuff is probably not where you can get your biggest upside. In my mind, I actually think that top of funnel, looking at how you're actually bringing in business and really trying to innovate on that is, is critical. I'm going to question you. It seems that the, that a vertical business will be better suited to innovate on AEC data because they own the data and have a longer time horizon. Do you see a smaller sector emerging that does this specifically prop tech maybe, and take portion of the work out of traditional architecture design firms? I think you're right in that like um, the, the vertically integrated companies have an advantage in that they own the entire process. And so they have the data from the very start of a project right through to kind of its occupation and can look at that kind of full life cycle of the project. And they also have the kind of financial incentive. If you're a company like WeWork, if you design something that doesn't perform, you own the kind of cost of that financially, whereas that's not necessarily the case for people operating kind of more traditional methods. Yeah, and I'm interested in what this may look like, I guess, kind of suggesting that maybe it could be like a its own kind of area of specialization and kind of practice. Yeah, I'd love to see something like that kind of emerge in the industry. It'd be really interesting, right? Like a firm that kind of specialized in like taking all of your project data, analyzing it longitudinally and giving you advice on where you should be investing and how you should be kind of designing your space or like maybe even the brief that you're giving to your architects. Yeah, I think that could be like really cool, but maybe some property management companies are doing stuff like that already, but I personally aren't really aware across any of that. Yeah. What I've seen is some companies that are really focused on things like capturing the physical space that commercial developers might have. So the 3D scan everything and then offer the value back, additional value back to those firms based off of those 3D scans, whether it's as built or things like that. But that's the core focus of the business. So it, it compl- the, whole, the whole business is structured to support those inputs and outputs. And I think the any other kind of small sector emerging, again, I think it's not even just the owning the data on what is built. The other piece of leverage that these types of businesses have is the marketing side. They become actually the investment on the marketing and sales side is probably about this equal or disproportionately maybe even more higher than investment on the actual things being produced at times. And so there's just... A very, uh, you know, how you look at, like, you actually have to become a very good brand company, a very good marketing company to be able to sell a verticalized solution. And I think, I think WeWork was a, a very good example of this in terms of what they were able to do with their marketing and sales teams. Otherwise, 
you know, anything, all the investment that you're putting into optimizing the product, you just can't sustain it. You can't make the product better if you're not very, very good at, at uh, selling it. Thank you, Mitchell, for that question. And so I think we're a bit over time. So I just want to uh, basically thank you, Daniel, and then kind of roll out the carpet for you. And uh, would love, you know, if you, I don't know, could share any insights into like the next article that you're writing or what you, what anything else that you're doing these days? Yeah, we're actually working on a really cool project at Hustle at the moment, um, looking at how people in Australia are kind of going back to work because Australia is like this really interesting case study because they've gone through kind of all the lockdowns and stuff. There's still some places in Australia like Melbourne that are like kind of locked down, but other cities like Perth have been kind of free of coronavirus for a long time. And yeah, so we're studying at the moment kind of what that's like for the people that are returning back to work. And uh, probably around November we'll, we have something to kind of release and talk about related to that, which yeah, I'm really excited about. Very, very cool. I'm looking forward to seeing that. So thank you so much, Daniel. Really excited. I'd love to have you come back on this, uh, especially after that report is out to talk a little bit about that. Hopefully things have settled a bit by then as well when it comes to COVID, but uh, really looking forward to it. Thanks everyone yeah. for joining me. Thank Thanks. you. See you later. See you later. Cheers. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.